Welcome back to another episode of Being an Artist is Fucking, fucking killing, killing Me. And oh, is it ever. <laughs> Friends, it is bleak out there. And we, full transparency, this is our second time recording this intro because we recorded one on Thursday before the news kind of broke on Friday and everything went bananas. Went bananas. Yeah. And it was like very vague and very like, everybody just wash your hands. It'll be fine. Don't worry about it. Yeah. And <laughs> things have changed. <laughs> and Friday, we realize that that's not the right advice. Yeah. Nor should we give advice. Yeah. Also, <laughs> but still, maybe you're there with us when you started getting your emails coming in Friday morning at <sighs> 6 a.m. of everything being canceled, every contract being put on hold, every teaching job you have being postponed for two to three weeks, every layoff coming in from your, you know, Joe job, everything that's been happening. Um, we started to feel very stressed out and we thought our opinions had changed. <laughs> Things yes. had changed. Yeah. And honestly, we're recording this Saturday night and it might change by tomorrow. It might change by Monday. It might change by Tuesday morning. Yeah. So... What we want to say is we are here for you. Yes. We will not stop recording. We will not stop releasing episodes. This podcast takes four people. It takes Corinne and I. It takes our um, junior producer, Devin, who works on an online format. And it takes a guest. Right. As of right now, we have had no guests really cancel on us. One guest cancel. Yeah. Because she had just been to the States. She's not sick, but she wants to, like do her part for the community and not, like, be intermingling. Yeah, which is, we appreciate. Yeah. And, um, listen, if you want to be interviewed, just, like, let us know because come two months, if we're also in the state, we may be <laughs> thirsty. <laughs> we really don't want to start our our alternate podcast, which is called Podcasts. With our kittens, because that's so sad. And as much as we joke about it when we're high, it's also so, so sad and would be it's not sad. great. I don't think it's sad. I think it's fucking hilarious. <laughs> and I think it should happen as bonus content. <laughs> so Patreons, look out for that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but what we're trying to say is, yeah, we're here. We're not going to stop. You know, we find it's like our, our duty to this industry that um, people that are going stir crazy have something to listen to and... Our mandate has always been to provide entertainment and an open source of communication for people who are struggling in these times. And that is especially prevalent right now. Yeah, 100%. Um, and on that note, when you hear this episode, if you go to our Instagram, there will be a link in that bio with a bunch of resources that we found. Um, there's been some really great things coming out of a bunch of different artists. Unfortunately, a lot of them are U.S.-based, but those will be there. They're going to have links of how to easily apply for EI if that applies for you. Um, we're going to have links to Equity Canada statements. We're going to have li links to what Actors has going on. So, like, how to apply for EI? Yeah. Too. Um, hopefully, those things are helpful. Or um, if they're just you know good reading material, maybe also to some actual health information if it's still relevant. Yeah. The time that this episode comes out, maybe it'll inspire some sort of source to come forward and start something like that for Canada. Yeah. We don't know. We're kind of in the beginning stages of it. And, you know, we seem to have a bit more of a grasp on it than right. in the U.S., but we are still trying to be safe. And three weeks without work, a month without work 
some people can't do. Um, and that's really scary. Yeah. Um, but you know what? We're going to be here. And also we're going to post those links. And if you need help at all, um, I guess, like, reach out to those sources. And feel free to, like, reach out to us for, like, an open discussion. Yeah. Yeah. We are going to probably have a lot of time on our time on our hands. <laughs> yes. So maybe there will also be, like, more than... Sorry. More like short form <laughs> podcasts more than once a week if this like continues on a long format mm-hmm. because there will be I think a lot of people with things to say and like a lot of people that just like want to be around other people. Right. Because self-quarantine is the fucking worst. Yeah. And I thought I wanted that. I was like, oh, yeah, time off by myself. Two days in, I was like, <sighs> yeah, it's a lot. Yeah. I mean. It's kind of interesting because, like, the irony of all of it is that, like, I submit my thesis on Monday. And for the past, like, you know, eight months, I've been, like... Quarantined? I've been, like, you know what? I'm going to submit this thesis. I'm going to fucking watch The Crown. I'm going to sleep all day. I'm not going to have eight hours of work to do every single fucking day. It's going to be amazing. Here's the other side of it. (laughs) Now we're all getting quarantined. My thesis is still due on Monday. But I have no income to go out drinking. (laughs) And, uh, yeah, that's real. And now I just, like, it's not, like, an option, like, fun thing. I get to watch The Crown all day and drink champagne. It's, like, you know, I have to watch The Crown. Kind of like that I, that mindset that has changed. Yeah. Don't tell me to do something because I won't do it. But if you, like, implant the seed in my brain, like Inception, of course. Yeah, I'm also an Aries, so, like, stubborn as fuck. <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, something else that we were bouncing around is maybe like little artist get togethers Mm -hmm. small numbers of people potlucks jam sessions hanging out at people's houses if that's something that you're interested in or into if the quarantine doesn't get like super fucking serious Mm -hmm. let us know yes we'd be interested in doing that and um it would be not like a a fundraiser party it it wouldn't be a fundraiser party we'd be doing it um more like a potluck style so like bring what you can Mm -hmm. and um we would just like organize it yeah these are things that we are currently discussing and you know we don't really know what's going to happen situations day by day seem to be changing um and we're not really trying to like panic no do anything or panic people but i think like in the past two days corinne and i individually have been like (laughs) have panicked have had panic (laughs) moments um you know because of you can only kind of say, like, ignoring it and, like, oh, people are doomsdaying and freaking out for so long before you start, you know, recognizing when people are getting laid off that that is – it's going to affect everybody. It's going to affect our economy. Yeah. Totally. Um, but without further ado – We do have an excellent guest. <laughs> this is a top-notch episode yes. with a fucking hilarious human being. Yeah. So- Ugh. You know, I hope everybody's enjoying their coffee this morning or whenever you're drinking this, your glass of wine. Maybe your glass of bourbon. Are you, like, a white wine lady? Get into that. Are you a bourbon at 10 a.m.? Who knows? (laughs) But um, we wish you the best, and please feel free to reach out at any point. Here we go. Uh, My name is Aaron Jan. I'm a director, playwright, and dramaturg. So can you tell a story about how you got kicked out of Ryerson? Are we recording already? Yeah, that makes sense. Oh, sick. Okay, great. Um, <laughs> oh, I want, I want to hear how you got kicked out of Ryerson. Yeah. Um, it's funny because every time I do an interview, this always comes up. Uh, I um, Wait, out of the theater program? Which program? Uh, performance acting. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so they, they, do cu- they do cuts every year, and like I was the worst one in my class. Uh, I went to Ryerson initially because... Who were you with? Which class? Uh, Mina Masood's class. I was with Disney's Aladdin. 
Which year was that? Uh, 2010, we enrolled, and 2014, we graduated. So that's like Jake Vanderham, mm-hmm. yeah. Kaylee Gorka, Zach Parkhurst. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those folks. Yeah, so I went to Ryerson uh, because uh, my acting teacher, acting teacher, my drama teacher at high school had never gotten a student to Ryerson, and I was the first. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to be famous now. <laughs> so I went to the school, and I was like, I was one of those kids who was like hot shit in my acting class, and I was like, I got this. And I walk in on the first day, and I just remember, like, everyone's a model. I just looked at them and I was like, oh, fuck. Like, all of you are tall, beautiful, these tall, beautiful, white, sexually active creatures. And there's like a little Asian dwarf. And I'm like, oh, fuck, we're fucked. So um, I was trying way too hard. Like, I was trying to impress the faculty. I was just, and I was repeatedly told I was at the bottom of my class. Uh, it was interesting because at the time, like, the... Uh, the faculty would do this thing where, like, um, they would kind of ostracize you and make the rest of the class know that you were doing badly. So, like, I didn't really have him any friends. I flamed out. I was drinking a lot as a child. So I remember, like, I would get, like, someone, an adult to buy me, like, a little Mickey from the LCBO. And I just drink it on the weekends. I just drink all this sourpuss on the weekends and cry <laughs> to myself. Because I was, like, I was a really good kid in high school. And then, like, Ryerson broke me. Like, in October, I got a letter saying, you are on probation. I met with the Croatian. Oh, in October already? Yeah. And I met with the Croatian head of the program, and she was like, you should consider other schools. And I was like, but how did it become better? And she's like, I can't tell you that. And she just looked at me really firmly, and I was like, ah! So um, I was like this this stupid, like, drunk idiot kid. Um, and yeah, I got kicked out. Um, well, not really kicked out, but the end of the first semester, I remember walking in. I was eating a piece of Hawaiian pizza, and I was shoveling it into my mouth. And I walk into the, inter- the closing interview, and they're just like, you're the worst in the class. I'm like, I know! And they're like, we don't think you should come back. And I was like, well, what do I do? And they're like, we can't help you. So um, that was kind of like foundational, I think, in all of my theater stuff and my art stuff. Because the first thing I had in Toronto was a traumatizing rejection-based experience where, in my opinion, the pedagogy was so fucking bad. I was like, I can never create a room like this and I can never go back here. When I come back to this city, I want to create real connections. I want to actually invest myself in the work, not try to be this famous person going to Stratford, but actually engage with the work on a real level. Mm-hmm. I think my most vivid memory was on the day, like I had to go back to the ghost station. It was like pissing snow, not even like snowing. It was just like literally urinating snow. And I, I didn't know how to pack a suitcase. I was so pathetic. So I was dragging a garbage bag filled with my laundry down Young Street. Like, and I was like, I'm going to walk and I'm going to save TTC. And then I just, I sucked. So I got a cab and I was sitting there covered in like sewage water with this garbage bag. And I was like, I am so pathetic. This is terrible. If I come back to the city, this will never happen again. So that's my Ryerson story. <laughs> Very bad. I'm sure the institution's gotten better, mm. but like, yeah. <laughs> they also diagnosed me with ADHD. Oh, you went to Ryerson too? Yeah. <laughs> oh my, which year? I went for first year. I would have been um, right ahead of you, actually. Oh my God. But then I got, I had mono going in. Oh. Uh... So I was actually, I got like really sick. Yeah. Yeah. Like, really, really awfully sick. And I, I had to get pulled out. At the, I like going into the second year, I pulled out. Did you have any like regrets about that? Or were you like, I'm fine. This is okay. I was very sick. I was 105 pounds. Oh, Jesus yeah. Christ. Ah. <laughs> so it was like a really rough, rough time. But they also like are crazy. Like they di- they like just diagnosed like six people in the class. Like also like by diagnose, I mean like six like ballerinas who, to be honest with you, like not really sure of their level of education. If they were masters, PhDs, yeah. not doctors, obviously not medical doctors, just to diagnose a bunch of students with ADHD, which is like... 
bananas. Mm. <laughs> and that was like my mom's like first thing being like, this is very fishy. Mm. And then I was just like really sick and I was like ready to go back for my second year. Mm. And I was like, went to the doctor and the doctor was like, no, you need surgery. So I <laughs> didn't go back, but it's okay. But it, yeah. they are like, they do like crazy things. Like mm-hmm. I got sick on my own, like on my own body. My body got sick. Yeah. Was it because of the stress for Ryerson and first year university? Probably. Mm-hmm. But like, it's because of my body, but them diagnosing me with ADHD was like just in, insane, you know? <laughs> it was like surprise insane, me at all. Insane thing. But yeah, so they're, I think like in terms of like their pedagogy and like the way that they mm. operate, I have heard that it's not as bad. Like yeah. it, it's not as intense as it was when in like 2009, 2011. Yeah. 10 years ago, yeah. Yeah, so like, I don't know. I don't know what it's like now, but. Yeah, well, I think it's funny because like after George Brown got busted, Right, for that that whole Me Too thing where, where yeah. Todd Hammond made that girl bulimic and then, like, did creepy things. Um, I feel like all these theater schools have like, kind of gone through a reckoning where they're like, oh, shit, we have to turn everything over. Yeah. But I'm like, it's so funny that it just took one article online to do that. Mm. Like, that to me is fascinating. I'm I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm curious about Ryerson by the end of the day. Like, I'm not quite that curious. Fascinated how? Um, well, just, like... That none of them were able to like recognize the faults in their pedagogy earlier. Mm. Like, yeah. Oh shit! Like you're you're telling all these girls to lose weight because like you don't think they'll or work. gain weight. Yeah, like lose or gain. Yeah. Like what the yeah. fuck? And and the fact that like what it just took one student coming out and like taking down an entire faculty to make them go, oh shit, this could happen to us. Let's change. Like, fuck you. Yeah. I don't know. Like, Ryerson made me distrust institutions. So when I went to York, it was just very. I was very arrogant because I was like, fuck this. I have my own rules. <laughs> and like, I was just an asshole at York. But like, yeah. but I don't know if that was much better, but I don't know. I, I'm very distrustful of institutions. I think it's institutions that do art programs and performance-based programs. Yeah. There's a lot of issues with it because mm. all of it's subjective. Mm-hmm. And I think that grading art is a weird thing. And I oh God, think yeah. it's not really valid mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. And I think that um, also when my experience going to dance school yeah. in a university setting was that I was graded against my peers and not against what? my own. Yeah. We went to the same art school or wait, after I was graded against my peers and not on my own improvement or my dedication or my hard work. What? So like constantly at the bottom of the class, constantly not getting cast in things, mm-hmm. even though I was paying to, for performance experience, mm-hmm. like that kind of stuff. So I'm like right there with you. <laughs> so wait, so what was that like? Like, was it just like, oh, this person's doing better than you, so your grade is being bell curved down? Um, it's also just like, do you know what it is? Sorry, not to take that question away from current, but I just had a thought about like, yeah. it has like, we're all artists and we're all like emotional beings, yeah. and that's we're extra emotional. But you expect like being a professor in an institution mm-hmm. for you not to be as emotional and erratic. Mm. Right. But there still is that like emotional erraticies that happen within professors that are supposed to be these higher beings that are supposed to be yeah. like the guiding sources, but they haven't forgotten mm-hmm. their shit. They haven't mm. forgotten that one edition. Like Nadia Potts never fucking forgot that she was below Karen Kane. Like, you know, she, <laughs> heard, yeah. yeah, like she, people never mm. forget their like, they're, you know, even how successful they are. Like, yeah. she was so successful. There were so many professors that are so mm. successful in their own degree, but they never forget that, like, one person that 
that didn't, and I feel like it really drives them, and it kind of really emulates into their own students. Mm. No know. one works through their own bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes. Also, like, Nadia Paz, I love you. I'm sorry to everyone who's listening to her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You all said it, okay? I all heard you yeah. say it. I'm just repeating. We've been told... Mm. Yeah. Anyway, can Karen, you answer? Um, what was the question again? I don't remember. Um, <laughs> I got, I got oh, how did it feel yeah. to be in an institution like that? Um, well... I had to make a decision if I wanted to be there or not, yeah. if I wanted to like finish the program. Totally. So in my sec, I think it was somewhere in my second year, I like took a look at what I was doing and I was like, also like, you know, my first year is like yeah. first time out of my parents' house, yeah. living on my own in yeah. a big city. So I was like partying a lot. I was mm -hmm. drinking a lot. Didn't really do well in my first year. And then mm -hmm. halfway through my second year, I had to like look at what I was doing and then take some of their criticisms mm -hmm. as like, real things because they're just watching me yeah. show up to class like either still drunk or hungover mm -hmm. all those things and then be like is this something that I want to do and then I had to decide yes and so like I changed my behavior yeah but then I was still felt like I was even though I was working so hard I was still like judged against my peers and it still wasn't paying off in performance that's so fascinating and then I granted you, that university doesn't have a lot of performance opportunities for any for mm. for dancers no as is yeah yeah mm. But like even in the um, the one production that it does have, which is called Main Stage, yeah. which is supposed to be for the dance majors, mm -hmm. wasn't cast in it until my last year of university Woof. as an understudy. Yikes! <laughs> so what was it all for? Exactly. Nothing. Nothing. Oh my and then I like immediately left that city and was like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. I don't know. It was frustrating. It was frustrating yeah. for sure because I felt like after I'd made that decision to like do better yeah. it wasn't like nothing was happening shit yeah 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 also just like the decision making skills of the people in charge of that program are <laughs> questionable <laughs> questionable yeah <laughs> I almost said traumatizing mm. <laughs> which it is but so <laughs> questionable super questionable yeah yeah well it's so funny but we're all still here we're all still making art yeah so like whatever it's still okay it's formative everyone asked me like do you regret going I'm like no I don't regret going to Ryerson because I think it, it taught me a lot of things yeah. about things I believe in very strongly now and things I don't. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I don't regret that one semester of sad, drunk sourpuss. <laughs> and like throw it, I remember like just bad things. Which kind of sourpuss, the red or the green one? Uh, I tried the green one, but I was like, ah, and then I went to the red one and I was like, this is fine. <laughs> just tasted better, eh? Yeah, I oh mean, God. at the end of the day, it was just sugar and I realized, I was like, oh, I'm not getting over. And then the next day I'd be like, why did I do this? this is... And then I went back to Hamilton and I started drinking with like high schoolers and it got really fucked up. Like oh I had like six months of sorrow in Hamilton where I was just like, I was a hot mess. <laughs> and then like, I don't know, something snapped at me where I was like, this isn't a sustainable way to live my life. Totally. I'm going to start a theater company and then like, mm. and just start making shit because like on the way out of Ryerson, they were like, you are not an actor, you are the director. That was my very bad impersonation of the former head of the acting program. You don't have to edit that out. I hate her, and I'm very open about that. What was her name? Do you mind saying it? Sorry. Um, Cynthia Ashberger. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't think she teaches there anymore. If she does, um, she's a very bad person. So you can keep that on the podcast. Love that. Um, because she can't hurt me anymore. Um, she can hurt other people, because I think she's teaching somewhere, but who wow. cares? Um, anyway, so uh, they told me on the way, like, you're a director, not an actor. And I'm like, I know that. I know director i only was here because my acting teacher told me to be but yeah i uh i built a company in hamilton and like 
we did work for a few years, and then we, we closed after three years. Um, but it, it was good, because like every year from York onwards, I augmented my summers by doing like fringe productions and like shows in Hamilton and Toronto. So like I was able to apply the things I learned at York in a practical setting in the summer. So like I actually set myself up. So when I left theater school, I was like, I've already had like eight shows under my belt. Like I can do this. Right. And going to Ryerson helped me spark that because I was like, if I just wait for a faculty to teach me something, I'm not going to fucking learn. I need to create my own opportunities, acquire my own funding and make it work. Right. So thank you, but no thank you, Ryerson Theater School. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's also something that I learned in school too. Like mm-hmm. you have to stop. But I didn't like experience the, that like revolutionary change that you yeah. did until I like came to Toronto. Valid. Was that like you have to just do it yourself and you can't wait for someone to like yeah. pull you out mm-hmm. of the like dredges and like mm-hmm. place you on stage. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because the likelihood of that happening is like one in... 1,000. Right. Yeah. And I also feel that, like, I don't know, maybe this is me talking to my ass right now, but, like, it's often the people who aren't given those leads and those star roles in in art school, if they stick with it, are the ones who do better because they claw their way out of the mud. Like, they've known what it's like to get that fucking understudy, right? (laughs) They know what it's like to be, like, the mouse in Cinderella for, like, five years. So when they leave theater school, they're already used to rejection. Like, I know, like, a lot of the stars in my, when I went to York in that year, like, they stopped because people stopped handing them things to them. Mm. Whereas like the people who are like, ah, oh, shit, I'm carrying the pot again. They're working now because they were like, I don't want to fucking carry the pot anymore. Right. Right. Or like, I'll carry the pot somewhere else. Right. Yeah. 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 It's very true. Mm-hmm. I mean, those people we all went to school with, I'm sure you can name like one person that's actually working. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. I don't. There's something about, like, having to work for something. Mm-hmm. I think that's what theater school teaches you. It should teach you, at least. Like, right. A discipline of, like... I don't, I don't know how to fix pedagogy. Like, I teach a little bit, but, like, I don't quite know how to, like, actually structure a four-year program for, like, young adults becoming young people. Mm. Um, but I think there's something that's to be said about the rigor you go through in art school. Mm. Just, like... It, and hopefully that gives you rigor in your own life, because... Because, like, rigor isn't something, like, you can naturally acquire. Mm. It's something you have to, like, learn autonomically. That's my word. By rigor, do you mean, like, like working a lot, working hard and working long hours? Or what do you, what do you um, mean by that word? <clears throat> Just, yeah, the discipline. To be mm-hmm. like, hey, I'm going to be in a studio for eight hours. And I'm going to build for eight hours. Or as a playwright, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to k- kick out this draft in a, in a month. And I know that about myself. Or, like, an actor, like, I know how to break apart this monologue, mm-hmm. or I know how to break apart this scene, so when I come into the first day of rehearsal, I'm prepared. Right. Um, no. Yeah. And I think I think yeah. that's, like, that's why I, I guess, like, even though I shadow over theater school, um, I think it's really important because, or art school, because it teaches you that rigor, or it allows you to develop that within yourself. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's, in two ways. It does provide you with, like, a tough skin, mm-hmm. which you need. Yeah. And, you know, maybe... That is a quality that is often pushed mm. in these types of programs is that like to teach thick skin right away. That's yeah. whether that's actually the basis for our, all our programs and it should be at this point. Mm. I don't think so, but mm. um, yeah, it, it also teaches you to work like you're working at a level that's like you're going to leave and also if you continue if you continue to work you will be busy all the time like yeah. it's like multitasking multi-working mm-hmm. tired working when you're tired totally 
that's helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Finding mm-hmm. like efficient ways to work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, being in perform- being in rehearsals for 10 hours a day <clears throat> teach you a lot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> also, but when you don't want. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. if that's a life you don't want, it's like, no, I don't like feeling this way. Yeah. 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 I have so much respect for people who don't go into the arts after art school. Like, oh, yeah. I'm like, good for you. Like, you found something that makes, that works for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also being able to, like, being brave enough to make that switch is, like, very... Exactly. ...admirable yeah. without, like... You know, being able to make that switch and know that about yourself. Mm-hmm, totally. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I know you just said you didn't know how you would structure a program. Oh, God. <laughs> You're going to put this onus on me. But, like, what are things, what don't you like in a rehearsal process? Like, what Oh, rehearsal process. Okay. Or, like, I can, I can start your rehearsal process. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think there's, like, similarities between mm-hmm. the two. Like, creating sure. rooms, you know? Um, I don't like wasting people's time. Okay. That's what I'm big on. Um, I don't like... A director who's a dictator. Mm. I think that's useless. I, I like collaboration. I like empowering my actors. Um, I don't like a process that doesn't have rigor, like that we're going to dive into the text, that we're going to keep exploring the text and exploring all those possibilities. Um, in my processes, I really favor getting the actors into runs as quickly as possible, just so like they experience the show and they don't fear the show. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think I think something that I've taken from theater school is like, how do you make the actors feel empowered in their choices so you're not puppet mastering them around the stage? Mm. Um, that's really, I'm really big on that. Um, I, whenever I work on a, I'm, I'm working on a show right now and it's structured the same way. It's musical. I've never directed a musical before, but it's structured in the same way I structure my text rehearsals. Like we do three weeks of table work or the equivalent of three weeks of table work um, or a week of table work. And then we will uh, block, then we'll run. It's that simple. Mm. Because I think that like, <clears throat> The sooner it's in their bodies, and, and the actors decide the pace of the table work. I learned this technique from someone at Factory Theater where, like, we decide where the units are ourselves and the world shifts. So because we decide them, like, as a collective, the actors then feel empowered to switch them around and move them and make choices. So, but because we've set that from day one and set a precedent from day one that their voice is just as powerful as mine, mm-hmm. and it's more of a collaboration than me screaming at them in the dark... Um, they feel like they're more connected to the process. And loose, yeah. Yeah, and I'm, I'm really big on that because, like, you can always tell when a show's over-directed. Um, How can you tell? Well, it's just, like, you can tell the choices aren't the actor's own. Like, mm. the movements, I'm sure you can see this in dance, too, when, like, choreography's forced onto a dancer's body and they can't actually perform it. Timing. I find that with timing mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah. 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 And, like, if they have the musicality or not. Yeah. Because yeah. if it's inherent in them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think different bodies are just so wonderful and different minds are just so wonderful. And, like, the choice I do on my page may not work for someone. And then whenever someone challenges them, like, what do you want to do? And then I riff off that. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm always big whenever we block. Like, they'll go through the move first mm-hmm. and then I'll build off of them. And if it's, like, really dreadful and we're falling into a pit, I have a plan. But, like, I think I've learned in my directing that, like, the more I trust my cast and create a container for them to explore the show, the better it is. I think also think on the flip side, a lawless rehearsal process is a waste of time. <laughs> like, we can spend hours doing viewpoints and rolling on the ground. But unless the director creates a container and a structure and a framework, nothing will happen. So I think going back to that whole theater school thing, theater school taught me a container is important. Mm-hmm. But it's the most important thing about the container is you build off the choices of your cast and you shoot them right back at them. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love how excited you got while you were talking about that. I fucking love directing. <laughs> directing theater is like, oh, I, 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 I had a, I, I was on residency yesterday after three weeks ago, and like, 
I got really homesick. Like I got really sad. And then like when I went back, I had a rehearsal for the show, and I was like, I'm back. Like I, f- I felt like emotionally I was there. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it was. It, it feel directing feels good because like you're in a room breaking apart a piece of potentially dusty text, and finding where you lie in it, where your heart lies in it. Mm. What uh, text are you working with right now? I'm directing Spring Awakening, uh, the musical. Yeah, I've never directed a musical before. It's my favorite musical. Uh, so yeah, um, I'm starting to go into directing musical theater because I, I think like my indie gross sensibilities are good for musicals. Right, especially Spring Awakening. It's a great yeah. indie musical. Oh my god, it's the show that got me into theater. But yeah, I. Um, Did I, you see the? Um... The Deaf West. Yes, that's uh, exactly what I was going to ask. Sorry. I've seen the bootleg. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> Which was beautiful. Yeah. Um, yeah, I I just remember seeing that when it came to Toronto in like 2008 or nine, mm-hmm. and being like, yeah. I don't need to pretend to like Shakespeare anymore. No. Like, this speaks to me. I mean, that being said, like, let's talk about these classics that are constantly being rerun at, at Stratford. Ugh, whatever. I mean, <laughs> why are we, why are we still doing, you know, plays that are irrelevant to the, the actual culture that is happening within Canada? Well, I think moment? Stratford's its own beast. Cause like when I went to the festival, I learned a lot of things about it three weeks ago. The first thing, it's a commercial venture. Stratford, the festival was originally built cause the town was poor. So they were like, instead of passion, it was like, let's build a theater company. So let's make a lot of money for the town. So I was like, I get it. It's a commercial venture. And it's a tourist venture too. Like they have something called like the Michigan, some, the Michigan mile or something, the Michigan people where like they get a bunch of people from Michigan, they fly them out and they just, they like, they get them to donate like a ridiculous amount of money and they fly them out to Europe. And I'm like, mm. yeah, you know what? I think there's a place for those dusty things because there's an audience for those dusty things. Um, I'm not interested in that. I'm just not really interested in telling stories uh, that have nothing to do with, I guess, BIPOC individuals. Or BIPOC individuals can't find themselves emotionally in that narrative. Um, There's an exception to this, though. Like, I saw a really strong production of Hamlet that was in the city called The Prince Hamlet, uh, where uh, Horatio spoke in ASL. Yeah. And, like, I don't think Ravi's a genius director, but the way Ravi staged that was, like, so contemporary. Like, I was weeping through it. I remember sitting there and being like, wow, you really understand this text and you understand like what makes what makes this character tick. I've never understood to be or not to be. Like the way Robbie staged it was like he had like Gertrude and Claudius just fucking in the corner. Hamlet watches them, screams, and goes into be or not to be. And I'm like, I get you. I get you. <laughs> Fuck. I get you. Yeah. Finding new motivation for yeah. Yeah. the reasons of action. Yeah. Um, or like motivation that's always been in the text. That people right. aren't willing to go to that ugly place. Like, yes, more of that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt you. Ravi's Why Not Theater, right? Yes. Why Not Theater did that production. Oh, my God. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. Like, he's also just so generous. Like, when I was sad and kicked out of theater school, um, I did a directing program containing stage. And he was my first mentor. And like... I was really scared of him, so I didn't really treat him very, not treat him very well, but, like, I ghosted him and I hid from him. But, like, the little nuggets he gave me during that mentorship were, like, things I'll remember forever. Like, I remember he told me that, like, as a director, he he looks at himself like, we're a bunch of pirates and we're looking for treasure. He has the map, but he doesn't know how to read it. So together, we're going to read this map and find the treasure. (laughs) And I've always remembered that. And he would tell me, like, it doesn't matter what's on someone's resume if they're a jerk it doesn't matter how good they are. Like, things like right. that. So, like, I think my friend Bessie, uh, Bessie Chang, she always says that, like, when you're casting, you always think of, like, who do you want to play sports with? If you're in an Ultimate Frisbee team, a pick of Ultimate Frisbee, who do you trust to play Frisbee with you? They don't have to be fucking good. Mm-hmm. But, like, 
if they'll show up every week to play ultimate at sundown mm-hmm. yeah so like <laughs> I, I, I just think about generosity and to me that like well that was a sprawling answer to your question <laughs> but like generosity to me is like kind of what cornerstones that and going back to process and going back to programming classic work or classical work it's like what generosity is in that classical work because it's not saying there's no generosity but like who is this actually reaching Mm-hmm. Is this reaching communities that don't find themselves represented in shows? Is this reaching for underdogs? Is this reaching for people who can't access the theater usually? What is the social relevance of this piece right now? Right. Yeah. And like, but things like, I find value though with some Shakespeare, like Shakespeare in the Park. It's free. Yeah. Like, yeah. Oh, exactly. And it is the Shakespeare in the Rough. To the masses, right? Rough and uh, High Park. Both oh, there are two of them. Allison yeah. uh, Wong is doing it this year. Oh, that's great. I love Allie. She, this year? Next year. I can't remember. Might be this year. She's producing or? Well, she is part of the master's program. Mm -hmm. Um, She's, I took a seminar with her. That's how I know her. Yeah. But she is part of the master's program, I think, in um, directing. And Mm -hmm. part of her master's degree is reliant on her creating something for Hyde Park. Oh. For Shakespeare. But she wasn't sure, or creating something. I think it was Shakespeare. I think she has to create a Shakespeare because Mm -hmm. of the stipulants of the, the project. But... Yeah, so she's doing it this year. Fuck yeah. Good for Allie. She's amazing. Yeah, she's got a big, big heart. She's a brilliant theater producer, too. Yeah, she's also just a brilliant mind. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's an opera background. That's what it is. Wait, what is it there? She used to, I think she started in opera, like directing opera. Oh. Yeah. Interesting. So it's like, they're she, a whole big world. She was one of the, um, she wasn't a, was she a producer on Four Sisters? Yeah. Yeah, she's a producer on Four Sisters. Oh, great. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Cool. <sighs> but yes, Shakespeare in the in the in the park, there is value because it is mm. set to appeal to right. a large, you know. It's like how you're taking these works mm. and adapting them for the different world that is now. Exactly. Yeah. Right? You're not just like remounting the way that they were done a hundred oh, years ago God, because no. what's the point? And I think that appeals to a certain like I think when we think about re- repurposing them in the classic way, mm-hmm. like who are you serving? Right. What audience are you serving? And there is an audience for that. Right. They're mostly academics. Mm. But like academics and like right. people who like love this stuff. But also like as a newcomer to theater, right? Like mm-hmm. like what what grinds my axe? Oh, that's a bad expression. Something about, well, guess my go. Guess my go. There right. we go. We did it. We accomplished it. Right. Yeah. I got into a discussion kind of about similar to what you're talking about. Yeah. About, um... With my sister, actually, who's an actress, about um, them creating Little Women. Mm, mm-hmm. And her, she was like, why did we need another, why did we need a movie about Little Women? Why? We already have one. And I was like, well, I actually think it, like, appealed to, like, you know, everything that's happening right now with women's empowerment and the way Greta, like, Gerwin interpreted it. I mean, I don't know what your opinion is. I don't know what everyone's opinion is. <laughs> but I think it was valu- It was yeah. valuable in... Totally. And I think it touched, it kind of, like, brought in mm. new people that might not know the story... I knew the story because I knew the musical. Yeah. Um, and I knew the movie from like a long, long time ago, mm-hmm. but male director mm-hmm. right now, like her interpretation of it within female empowerment, without yeah. with women and et cetera, and like making different choices and all these choices being relevant and you do what you want to do. Yeah. You know, whether you want to be married or whether you want to have a job or whether you mm-hmm. want to, you know, do whatever you want to do. But I think it was like a relevant portrayal of an old play. Absolutely. Um, you know? I fucking love Little Women. I uh, do too. I love I'm it. I'm <laughs> obsessed with Little Women. Like, that made it so contemporary. It was like, no, this person's a human. Yeah. Like, um, I, I just really value that movie. And everyone's like, oh, you'd hate it because you're a person of color. And I'm like, no, 
know. Like, I like white things, too. Like, <laughs> to me, Little Women is a culturally specific experience, and I'm here right. for that. In the same way I'm here for an all-Asian show. Like, <laughs> Little Women, all white people, yes, let's watch it. Let's love it. We don't have to put, we don't, I don't know, I'm, I'm big on this. Like, we don't have to put, like, we don't have to shoehorn, like, people of color into roles where it's just, like... Colorblind casting? Oh, you're just, oh, you're just playing a white uh. person. Like, 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 to me, I was fine with them all being white. I was like, you know what? Like, if one of them was Asian, I'd be like, what the fuck are you doing? Like, this <laughs> is... Also, it doesn't, like, how does that... I mean, like, how do we create little women given... Make like one of the characters being you know from Asian descent and not address the fact exactly. that they're from <laughs> Asian descent. I'm like, oh shit. Yeah. Uh, this is. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Yeah. Beth is like Beth is Asian and she's gonna die. Like, come on. Yeah. I I also just think that like I don't know as a playwright like like what's it? Joe Joe's journey in that show was like incredibly poignant and just like yeah. seeing her with all of the drafts was like oh. I remember just like he, I, I I obsessively watch Greta Gerwig interviews because she's like she's like me if I was like white female and like really awkward. I'm very awkward, but yeah. like I think she's great. I think Greta Gerwig's great. Yeah. I think like all her films are great. And like I realized the only Noah Baumbach films I like are the ones she helps write. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't love Marriage Story. I thought it was kind of boring. Mm-hmm. But like I love Frances Ha. Like just hearing like her voice and I think she has a, a line in Frances Ha where she's like, I like things that look like mistakes. And, like, I've kind of kept that in my directing philosophy mm-hmm. and in my playwriting philosophy. Just, like, just how do we make mistakes happen and how do we capture mistakes on stage? Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. I'm going all over the place. That's okay. I know that's great. Questions. Um, I was reading something that – or I should ask you this question first. Yes. What is this thing that you're working on for the last five years that no one wants to pick up? Well, it's not like nobody wants to pick up. I just think it's, like – it's it, it's, like um, – it's it's just like it's it's a play that was in residency at Factory, and then like it was in now it's in residence at Fujian. Um, it's not that no one wants to pick it up. I just thought like I was arrogant enough to assume that like oh it's been in development, I made so much money on residency money, like oh it'll get produced. Um, it's this play I'm working on. It was originally about um, pyramid schemes. Uh, a Chinese man who scams uh, other Chinese immigrants to have them sell knives in a pyramid scheme. Because when I was a pro, when I was seventeen and looking for a job, um, the uh, these people phoned me up and they're like, "Hey, you want a job selling knives?" And I was like, "Absolutely." And they were like, "It's a five hundred dollar buy-in, but you'll get it back when you sell knives." And of course, me being naive enough to like accept it, I almost took the job until my mom was like, "Wait, what the fuck are you doing?" <laughs> um, but I found out they had called me because I had an ethnic last name, and they were specifically targeting minorities because they knew they'd be vulnerable enough to work for the company. And I was like. That's so fucking fascinating. Um, I'm going to write a play about that. And I tried for five years. Um, but, like, my mo- my dramaturg essentially told me to restart. And I buy that restart, too, because, like, I think intellectually it was stimulating. But emotionally, the more interesting thing of that narrative was my, my interest in the deficiencies of being East Asian. Or my interest in, like, what I hate about being Chinese. That to me, that to him and myself, is actually the more interesting kernel than this container of like, oh, it's a road trip play. This guy's gonna, this guy's stalk, this guy's stalking this like guy who runs a pyramid scheme. They're fighting with knives, and he beats them up, and he cuts off his arms. Like that was the old play, but the heart of it was, you don't like being Chinese, do you? And I think I was unwilling to confront that, which is why I don't think the play read is truthful. So now it's being rebooted into something very different. I have a meeting with my dramaturg in like two hours after this, so maybe he'll reject my current spine. Mm-hmm. But um, but yeah, I think just like, just 
going there and really doing some real soul searching about well, what I don't like about being Chinese, like that to me has recentered the play about something more real. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah, and I think it was an interesting e- exercise, but also a way for me to realize that like I was writing more with my head and what I thought was cool over those five years than actually with my heart and what scared me. Right. Yeah. That's great. What was your question that you were going to ask? Um, I read that you were also working on creating um, complex characters in your theater. Yeah. Theater yep. is that we like have bad guys or mm-hmm. um, antagonists, yeah. and they're these extremely complex characters because we get like you know ten hours a season with them yeah. or fifteen hours a season with them, and mm-hmm. we watch them go through these like emotional developments. Totally. How are you trying to do that? In your theater work with your time is like totally this uh i all i think someone said this when i was in theater school but like i write villains who are trying to be heroes my heroes are always villains um my heroes always not a hero's journey yeah Yeah. it's like a villain's journey yeah um i find myself fascinated by villains so like whenever i'm my heroes are never paragons of anything Mm. they always do dubious things and they always are probably from dubious backgrounds they always fuck people over Mm -hmm. and it's just like and they'll face the emotional consequences of it. But yeah, I think I start from a place of there. I'm not really interested in like shining knights. I'm more interested in like, I think about Black Panther. I'm interested in like Killmongers. I'm, I think about the reader. I'm interested in Hannah Schmitz's. I'm interested in, in heroes who like you feel morally questionable about, but you're like, I get you, you know, even though right. like I would never hang out with you. Yeah. <laughs> so that's where I start. Great. I think there is something interesting about about the villain Hmm. and like also people that are interested in the villain because of their own, um, they don't consider themselves like a hero. Mm -hmm. They consider themselves like maybe not worthy of being that hero's journey. That's interesting. And I think that that's why it like draws people to these like villainous Mm. characters because they are problematic. The hero's often like perfect and muscular and Mm -hmm. white i don't know (laughs) (laughs) who knows i don't Mm -hmm. fucking know um but i think that there is something about like the villain there's just like some there's like problem the problems in them make them more relatable and Mm -hmm. make them more genuine i think yeah yeah and like i Mm. i I like i dig that yeah Like, like i think i think like I think I also watch a Disney because that's where we all start with storytelling. Like the Disney heroes I love the most are the ones who are flawed and the ones who are fucked up and the ones who like hurt people and learn how to deal with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like. Any examples? Oh, Jesus Christ. Zootopia. They're both flawed. Like Zootopia. Zootopia. Yes. Yeah. What a great movie. She's a racist. That bunny is actually a racist toward because it's all like allegory for like the predators are like people of color and the pervores aren't. Yeah. But like. So she she learns how to like get over her racism, mm-hmm. which I think is so interesting. Right. Um. God. Uh, uh, Moana's a bad example of this because she kind of doesn't really have any flaws, but I do like Moana. Um, <laughs> God. I. And it's also the reason I I don't like Frozen. Like I don't buy the narrative of Frozen because like I don't really see these characters as flawed. It's the world that's unfair to them. I have this huge rant about Frozen. <laughs> I'm just like, it made me so angry. Like, we saw the movie theater and my friend was like really into it. Yeah, my friend was like really into Frozen. And I was just like, no, no. <laughs> I reject the premise. I'm like, she needs to suffer. 
Like their their relationship is fractured. She must suffer. So then, when like she finally tells her she loves her, she earns that. Right. And I'm just so angry. She doesn't earn it. So when she's like, "I love you," I'm like, "I know." Like you've been saying that for the entire film. <laughs> like, ugh. And it's so popular, and the songs are kind of bops, which makes me furious. I'm like, like I have a terrible panic at the disco song, like on loop in my apartment when I'm like sad and writing a play. I'm like, oh, I'm gonna listen to you sing. But I hate Frozen. I'm just like, I'm like, just let let them hurt each other, because like I, I feel like real drama comes sometimes when you hurt each other and learn how to move past it. You know. Mm-hmm. And maybe that comes from my whole theater school background, but whatever. Like, like, but can you name a Disney production where that happens? Like, can can we think of a Disney production Zootopia. where Zootopia? Oh, right. Sorry. Right. <laughs> Zootopia. Um, oh, let me let me think. Like, where the heroes are flawed and they go on a journey. Mm. Uh, Zootopia. Fox and the Hound. Yeah. Fox and the Hound. They mm-hmm. suffer. Um, uh, Wreck It Ralph. Yeah, Wreck It Ralph. Also, like Mulan. Mulan. Yeah. Yeah. The only bisexual prince in Disney history. Yep. Yep. Oh, the villain, or like the villain being the prince. Oh, the villain being the prince. Is that what you're saying? Or who, what do you the, think? The, the characters hurt each other and they oh, have to work through I it. Yeah. Whereas like Frozen, what's happening to them is like the world hates them, mm. which is like kind of like an idealistic kind of like, yeah. um, like privileged way to look at it. Like mm-hmm. I'm fine. I'm a good person. Nothing's wrong with me. Mm-hmm. The world hates me. So you mean like royalty? <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> Megan and Harry, that was for you. Mm. <laughs> correct, correct, mm. correct. <laughs> yeah, but like, I, I think like to me, Zootopia was kind of the start of it, where it was like, oh, oh you're going there, mm. and like Zootopia, I, I saw like three times in the year. It was just fascinating to me. It's good, yeah. I was like, wow, you you went there and you pulled it off, mm-hmm. right? Good for you, Disney. I, I was telling... Uh, oh, Despicable Me. Sorry. Oh, Despicable Me. Despicable Me is not Disney. It is DreamWorks. Oh, okay. Yeah. Gotta get on that. Uh, I was so excited I thought of one. I was like racking my brain. I mean, they tried Maleficent, but that didn't really work. Um, well, it's Angelina Jolie, no shit. Yeah. But like, just, just I don't know. Just like, just the, the arc wasn't like quite there. Um, the Pixar movies are good for them hurting each other. Pixar's, Toy Story. Pixar's amazing. Oh my God, yeah. The stories are there. Characters there. And they like they mess with each other. Like I think about uh, what's the one where they're in her head? Uh, oh my gosh, inside or it, 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 it's like the, in, all the emotions in her brain. Out, inside, inside out. Inside out. out. That yeah. movie, I yeah, bawled my eyes out. Well, just like Amy Poehler's journey through that film is remarkable. Yes. Um, all the Toy Stories are just mostly based on a toy feeling indignant about another toy, and then like Woody does terrible things to the toys <laughs> and like learns how to fix it. Yeah. Um, Coco is the same way. Like he learns like Coco's really good. He changes yeah. So much. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm into that shit. Even Brave, which is not a great movie, no. like she learns that her mother loves her and she's like pretty terrible to her mom before. Yeah. And then her mom has to literally turn into a bear for her to be like, oh shit, like. I fucked up a lot. Like, I think uh, narratives are most interesting to me when the hero is accountable for the problem. Mm-hmm. Right. And like, yeah, Frozen just doesn't do that for me. And whenever I see Frozen, I just get angry. Because I'm like, you're going to make a Frozen 3, and it's going to be the same thing. And I'm going to be the only person in the theater being like, this doesn't work. And all the kids are going to be like, this is fine. I'm like, this doesn't work. Right. Yeah. Don't go see it. Don't yeah. go see it. And I, I'll, I'll try to stop people from seeing the film. <laughs> but like, 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 don't you think, th- I mean, not to bring this in, I know this is like, controversial in its own sense but sure. like the marvel movies i feel like do have that problem some of them some of them some of the movies do have but like in terms of like they are like the society gets mad at them for like causing destruction on mm-hmm. so there is an accountability in a sense but that being said they're still like but i'm right so i don't know it's not character driven like that yeah I think that was my issue with like 
actually my issue with Black Panther. Like, um, it's not character driven. Not it's character driven by Killmonger, the villain. But like, right. T'Challa doesn't really change. He just mm. changes the policy. There are Marvel movies that mess with that though. Like the Spider-Man movies are all coming of age mm-hmm. where he fucks up and he's accountable for things. Like the one where they travel, the recent one, the far mm-hmm. from home. Like, yeah. yes, he screws up so much because he doesn't think he's worthy of like being Tony Stark essentially. Right. And he gives Jake Gyllenhaal so many things and he hurts all of his friends. Yeah. That's why I love the Spider-Man films because he always fucks up and it's him learning how to be accountable for that. Um, oh yeah, I agree with you. The Marvel movies are a little like, hmm. they're not, they're not really quite there in terms of like, I'm accountable for things. But there, there are exceptions to that. Like the first Thor, um, which is all shot on a Dutch angle, which is weird. Cause mm-hmm. It's all like on an angle. So you watch the film like with your head cocked and you're like, oh, I mean, I guess Thor. <laughs> yeah. But um, I'm trying to like yeah. think about those. I mean, there's a lot Winter of Mar- soldier maybe. I don't know. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, I mean, I am not a huge fan of superhero movies because that's fair. I find them entertaining, mm-hmm. but I don't connect to the characters. So as you shouldn't, because they're not people; they're action figures. <laughs> Except. Except. I'll let Kurt say it. Um, Captain Marvel. Captain Marvel. It's true. Mm-hmm. Captain Marvel's fucking great. Yeah. Mm. <sighs> we both cry during that movie. That's good. That's really good. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm really excited for her sequel, just because the first one for me felt like, oh, cool. We're here. We're doing it. Yeah. And then, like, I really want to see her have a villain who challenges her. Mm, yeah. Because, like... Because she's just so above and beyond. She, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I think her stuff in Endgame was great, too. Mm-hmm. Like, just... Yeah, I, I cried through all of Endgame. Endgame was a pretty great movie. Well, the first hour of Endgame is just character-driven. Yeah. And I'm like, this is genius. Why haven't you done this before? And everyone's like, oh, the first hour. I'm like, no, the first hour is, like, an HBO film. Mm. It's The Leftovers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, like, yeah. Scarlett Johansson got to act in that film before she got thrown off a cliff. Right. And, like, good for her. <laughs> I, I will say I am not excited for Black Widow's series of movies. Me neither. However, I'm excited that Florence Pugh's in it. Right. I'm a big fan of Florence Pugh. And, right. like, she's going to be fine. <laughs> I'm not. I have some issues with Scarlett Joe. So she's my favorite Asian actor. What was she to have with, with her favorite Asian? And Apparently, trans also actor. your favorite trans actor. She's my favorite trans actor. She's also my favorite tree actor. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Like, uh, I just I don't know. It's just like it's important. Asian representation is important, and she's exactly. like the only Asian lead in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So I have to support her. I just have to. He's being sarcastic. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, oh my god! Like, I mean, it's so radical that an Asian woman was playing a rock. I was just like, thinking how that would read in. Yeah. For the record, I am Chinese. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, I don't know. Like, as far as race shit goes, like, I feel that like I can get mad about things, or I can be like, "This is hilarious." Like, because I don't know, just like racism is just so fucking interesting to me that like it, it's it's just a matter of, as a person of color, it's like you got to pick your battles, mm-hmm. and like. Getting angry about everything all the time is, like, not helpful. Like, I, I think that, like, one of my first mentors, Nina Liakino, I keep name-dropping. This is fucking weird. Um, she told me that, like, you seem very angry, but if you don't use your anger to be generous and make opportunities for others, like, you're not useful. People will want to watch you fail as a person of color. Mm. So, like, Oof. I've always taken that to heart of being like, okay, I'm mad about something, but how can I do use this to build infrastructure to support new people? Like, on Spring Awakening, one of my things was, Hamilton's so white. And, like, I kind of failed that with the cast. We only have, like, one person of color in it. But I made sure my two designers were, were like, I bought a mentor for them. So there are two Asian designers who've never designed a show before on the scale. So I was like, I'm going to, I'm gonna, personally, because I, I'm on all this grant money right now, I'm going to pay for your honoraria 
mm-hmm. and I'm going to pay you to have a mentor to consult with on this process. So it becomes a learning experience. So my like, hey, it's so white is like reinforced by like, okay, no, I'm going to make a positive change and I won't showboat about it. Like I'm going to do this and like, they're going to learn, but like, I don't need to be like posting about it all the time being like, look at our Asian designers. Look at them be Asian. Look at them design Germany. Like whatever. But like, I think, I think if, if as marginalized people, um, we, we use that rage to build things. It's wonderful. Like I think about Yolanda Bunnell, who's also on this podcast. Yolanda's about her, the best. She's awesome. She's so generous. And like her, her like how she didn't let white critics review Bug. And I was like, fuck yeah. And she got so many death threats. But like as a result, all these publications were forced to hire indigenous critics and pay them. Mm-hmm. And I was like, she won at the end of the day. Like even though she's still getting death threats from people from France of all places. Um she in the long run, she helped all these indigenous people get work. And to me, that's like that's radical generosity. Mm-hmm. Right. Fuck yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's not just sitting in our little silos and talking about being like, no, I'm gonna put myself on the line for this because I believe in my community and I believe in my community's power. Right. Yes. She's a hero. She's a fucking hero. Mm-hmm. She's a star. I was just like <laughs> thinking about when we had her on and she was like told us how old she was, and I was like, Are you sure you're not twenty five? Yeah. It's like the skin you have going on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It's the whole moisturizing thing. I just don't know how to moisturize. I look like an old man. You just put it on your face. I know. I just don't like wearing things on my face. Like, like when I was acting, like, put it in foundation. Like, I don't want it. My skin needs to breathe. I hate wearing anything on my body. That sounded really creepy. But, like, but like I, I try Are to Are you going to do, like, the naked man George Cassandra? <laughs> Pretty much. I'm, like, always in shorts in my apartment and, like, a really loose t-shirt. And they're like, why? I'm like, because I feel like I'm nude. But, like, I just, I just don't like... This is, like, a skin over my skin. And I'm like, ugh. I'd rather have, like, crusty old man skin than, like, wear this mm. this cream. <laughs> yeah. I, I will say the goal is often to feel like you don't have clothes on while having clothes on. Oh, I'm going to write that down. <laughs> <laughs> Just baggy shirts and sweats. <laughs> I don't think I want to catch myself in the mirror oh <laughs> naked. And I think that baggy shirts are comfortable. <laughs> yes. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> oh, my God. Fuck you. <laughs> So you were talking about directing and obviously yes. you are a director and you yeah. create opportunities for, you know, new actors and new mm. choreographers, artists, et cetera. I really try, yeah. Um, would you, is it, would you consider that teaching? Maybe. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think like anything can be a teaching opportunity, but at the end of the day, like when I teach, cause I've had the, the privilege and I've been so lucky to be asked to teach at some institutions for like guest spots. And I've been, te- I've been working with a, a group called Made in Exile, which is a bunch of Tibetan, like, mm-hmm. actors. Um, when I teach, I treat them like they're in my process. Um, so I don't actively try to teach. It's just like, let's discover this. Because I think that there's something about, like, talking down to people that, like, as a teacher that I kind of resent, having experienced that at theater school. So I think, like, I really try to be like, okay, my teaching is you're in a process with me. I'm going to treat you like you're in a process. Let's build. So we work together. And then at the end, we talk about what we learned. But, like, and what I learned from them, too. But, like, I don't consider that teaching. I consider that working. Educating. Educating, yeah. Because, like, educating to me is let's put you in a real-world situation and let's talk about it after. Mm-hmm. Like, what you learn. Because I think everything's a learning opportunity. Mm-hmm. But you don't need that hierarchy of, like, I'm telling you things and you're listening. It's like, okay, cool. So we need, to, for spring, um, we have limited resources, but we're trying to build, like, a German classroom that's been like overtaken by nature mm-hmm. on a budget that's very small. So part of the teaching, I guess, for that is like, 
my designer will come to me. I'm like, okay, but how can you get this for free? And then she comes back to me with another offer, and I'm like, yeah. So there's things like that. Like I think I think we learn when we're on in the field. We learn on the job. So mm-hmm. when I teach, it's like that. When I did the the playwriting thing with uh, May Nexile last week, um, we did table work mm-hmm. as though they were actors in my process. So I treated them like actors in my process, and at the end we did a debrief. But to me, it's all about like you're in the shit with me. Let's mm-hmm. walk through the shit together. Mm-hmm. So when you're in the shit, you can figure out how to get through it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 I don't think we really learn from being. You don't learn as well from just like theorizing and talking about what no. it's like to work as a professional. Exactly. As less, unless you're put in those situations. Yeah. But then if you've never worked in like a professional setting as a student or coming great out of school, people are like, you don't have any professional experience. You don't know what it's like to work in the professional or like, and they look mm. down on you. Yeah. You know? I resent that. Mm. It's like, I don't know. Pedagogy is so fucked up. But like my pedagogy is like, we're in this together. Let's fight through it. Mm-hmm. And then go from there. Like, it's the same when I when I help people with grants, um, which I'm very passionate about um, because it's so important to get paid. Um, but, yeah, it's like I'm willing to help as many people with their grants as possible because I've been lucky enough to sort of figure out how it works. I say this, and the moment this podcast comes out, I'll probably lose five grants. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, I'm just really passionate about helping young people get money, mm. get paid. That, to me, is so important because, like, I'm from a town where there's like not really a professional theater scene aside from a regional theater and everyone works for free or profit share. And I'm like, okay, cool. But how can we mess with that? How can we blow that up? Right. How can we like create opportunities where people can make money in Hamilton? Yeah. I recently just had this discussion with someone because they yeah. were told me they were working for someone who I know does profit share a lot. And that's like the only model that they use to pay their, their performers. Yikes on bikes. And I, no, I just know. Yeah. Um, and then I was like, I think that's okay mm-hmm. for like your first time. Totally. For like that first learning curve, for that first few experiences. Mm-hmm. But if you've been a co- an established company and you call yourself a company, yeah. and you're going into like multiple, multiple productions a year, mm-hmm. something is wrong. You need to like re identify or like mm-hmm. you need to rework what you're doing because at a certain point Mm -hmm. it's like not okay anymore and has like large ensemble of dancers they'll have like 10 dancers that's shit and then like three actors who are like Mm -hmm. the main focus of it and the dancers are like around them yeah i think it's also like to me it's like if you're asking people to work like that you're a hobbyist and that's fine that's totally fine you can be a Mm -hmm. hobbyist but like be really clear about that being like hey this is for fun you might get paid you might not but if you're taking the work seriously with rigor at some point, you have to get people paid. And, like, also, I guess for myself, like... Where's that, like, some point, that line for you? Um, well, when do you think you're worth money? Mm-hmm. I think that's... Like, I've started advocating for myself. Like, when I'm hired now, I'm like, this is my rate. And, like, whether... And that's denied me some gigs, but it's also gotten me jobs. Because I'm like, I know how much I'm worth. I know how much an hour I'm worth. And it also makes me take the work more seriously. Like, if I'm being compensated for it, it's right. like, yeah... So I think, to me, the point of, like, transitioning is, like, maybe a, a year out or a year or two out, it's like, okay, I've done a bunch of indie productions, and, like, I've done kind of well, but, like, don't I want to get paid? Mm-hmm. Unless you're, like, I'm a community theater, I'm a hobbyist, yes, keep working the way you're working. But if you're serious about this, I think, like, a year out, you should be applying for grants. Or even immediately out of school. Like, if you want to pay people equitably, it says something about your practice. Like, if you're an artist fresh out of school and you're like, no, I want to get paid. 
Right. Like, start applying for those grants. Start losing and winning grants to figure out what works for the councils and how to get that money immediately. Mm-hmm. Because, like, I think there's... I, I can't really speak for the greater theater community in Toronto, but, like, I just think there are so many young indie companies, like, having worked with a few, that grants are so foreign to them. And it's like, no, they're not. They're kind of easy to win if you know how to do them. Yeah. It's just, like, it's just... It's just a matter of, like, how do you sell your art? How do you use your grade 12 English skills to sell your art in a way that's really exciting? Like, I'm, I'm so big on getting people money. And I think that, like, if you're serious about this, uh, my mentor told me, she's like, if you're using your own money, you're not serious about this. But, like, when you start to dip into those resources and dip into other ways of finding money, things start changing. And the game starts changing. And you start valuing yourself more. Mm-hmm. I have a thought about that comment. Please. Um, that you're not serious if you use your own money, mm-hmm. I don't think is necessarily true. Okay, talk to me about that. Um, I think that there are instances and circumstances where your work is not going to be funded for the way that the funding bodies sure. want to allocate money. Sure. Which is fine. There's not enough money yeah. to go around, whatever. Mm-hmm. But then if I want to use my own money to make a put on a project because mm-hmm. no one else is hiring me. Yeah. No one else is giving me money. No mm-hmm. one else is going to like build my resume for me. I've got sure. to do it myself. I th- I don't think that doesn't mean that I, I'm not serious. I'm talking about mm-hmm. like I'm using I, but like, sure. Like the greater I. Yeah. I'll challenge that statement then okay. by saying, is there a way for you to get money, not from funding bodies? So it's not your own money. Like by fundraising, by getting in-kind donations. Yes. Yeah. So yes. That, is, that is not your money. Fair. Yeah. Okay. But like if you're if you're continually pulling money out of your own bank account right. and not getting because box office too is not your money. Fair. Like if you're making money from box office to pay people, that is also not your money. To me, right. the problematic point is if I put six thousand dollars into the show and like that money never returns. Right, right. Like right. that to me is where things get like, what's going on? Sure. Okay. Yeah. That's fair. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um Yeah. Yeah. Because things get scary when you start floating your money. Like, I remember I, I used to run a company that produced eight plays in eight months. And, like, right? Yikes. We didn't win any grant funding. We're like, let's still do the project. Oh, my God. So we sunk $2,000 of our own money that kept recycling every month from box office. And it was terrifying. Because we were seeing them. We were like, how are we going to get this money? When we should have been like, let's stop. Let's apply again for the next round of funding so we can pay everyone what they're worth. Mm-hmm. But we didn't do that. And as a result, um, I lost 2000 bucks on that show. And I was sitting there and I was like... This is a shitty way to live. Like, I was catering a lot. I was carrying all these plates. I was eating steaks underneath the AGO. And I was like, this is really fucked up. So then, like, I just realized that, like, if I want to do a project for myself, at least, like, I want to make sure I'm I'm funded. I want to make sure that, like, and if it's not funded through a granting body, is there something I can leverage to get me things and get them to pay for it? Yeah. What, yeah, what I think is really important is mm-hmm. that I think granting is important. Yeah. And I think... Supporting the arts through, like our community and our government Absolutely. is important. But I also think that we need to teach other we need to teach other ways of finding money mm-hmm. because I've noticed and I've heard heard people talk about they're like oh well I didn't get a grant so like it's not happening mm-hmm. or like they you know you know what yeah, I mean yeah totally and I'm like what else can you do because I mm-hmm. think that what's going to make you successful is being successful at all those different ways Absolutely. of marketing yourself and like selling your work totally yeah. Because there can't be only one way, mm-hmm. or else there would be no work. Yeah, interesting too is like sometimes companies can help you out. Like I didn't realize this, but like companies do have a reserve of community money mm. to give to important projects or people they like. Like 
there's a way to get money that people don't talk about. So I think that that intrigues me as well. I haven't I haven't done that yet. Right. Because I'm very lucky with the granting bodies. But like I'm I'm very curious about like partnering with other companies. I, I know like the opera company do something really cool, the indie ones. They have mm. like an opera alliance where they share resources. Mm. And like they have like one projector that they've bought as a group and they shuffle that around between them. That's awesome. Companies in the city don't do that. Like an alliance of five strong companies who are like, hey, let's share resources. Like that I think that's kind of happened in the city, but it's fallen apart. But like, and I think you'd have to have like really strong infrastructure to make that work. Mm-hmm. But I'd be really curious about like kind of an alliance structure for theater companies mm-hmm. or dance companies to be would, like, hey. Yeah, I would also be interested to see it like across mm-hmm. genres. Yeah. Because I think that there is also a lot more funding going to theater than there is dance. Really? I didn't know that at all. Like, if I can ask, like. Dance when... is the most underfunded program. What? In. In Canada, the Canadian Arts Council is the most underfunded mm-hmm. program. How much, if, if I can ask, like, um, when you look at the OEC report, like, how much money is returned to dance artists per... Per per, per, per dancer? Uh, not per dancer, but, like, like per per deadline. Like, when uh, they apply would, for so much money. I would have to look it up. I don't That's have so, so interesting. Much mm-hmm. But it's, like, most underfunded program. That's Why do you think that is? Versus visual art. Which I don't understand. I don't understand visual art at all. So whenever I see it, it's fun. I'm like, what the fuck are we looking at? I know. And every single granting body or like every single scholarship goes to people of visual arts. It's so fucking like, annoying. I just lost like 10 grand to a visual artist. I'm fucking pissed about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and by just, I mean Christmas Day. They, they, I found out actually. That I lost <gasps> the worst Christmas present. Oh my God. You're a loser. No money for you. Goodbye. I was like crying. It was awful. Oh my God. <laughs> It's a tricky business. Uh, I don't know why. I wonder if it's like, it's like ticket sales and it's like audience based. Oh yeah. You know, like how many people go see a theater show versus go see a dance show. That's fair. Especially like, also like hanging something on a wall or placing something in a room is probably a lot more economically sound Mm. than putting something on paying for the area, et cetera, Mm -hmm. et cetera. Right. Mm. Huh. Because, like, I don't know. I was talking to Laura about this recently because she's trying to, she's touring the show with Sarah Porter, I think her name is. Oh, Laura Phillips, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Laura. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, and she was, I, maybe this is wrong because I'm not in the dance world, but like, she was saying, like, dance audiences are usually in theaters of like 60 people or like yep. for contemporary. Super small, like, black box theaters. Jeez. They'll have like three show runs and, and like, like 80% yeah. of them are dancers. That's yeah. so tragic. So it's like dancers are making work for other dancers. They're oh. not really making it for a wider audience, which is probably part of the problem, but nobody really knows how... Well, that's what my thesis is about. That's what her thesis is about. But that's like, a really good thesis, yeah. Nobody is addressing it, especially in Toronto. So how do you how how do you propose to break that? I think interdisciplinary work helps. Mm-hmm. So also creating um, experiences over performances mm. for uh, clientele and guests rather than people that are knowledgeable about or people that are privileged enough to have attended theater. So mm-hmm. like creating experiences over these performances, because mm-hmm. um, people are more willing to spend money on like an experience than they are to go spend money and sit and watch something. What would that experience look like? I mean, it could be anything between like an immersive experience to like an event, to like a party, mm-hmm. to like an interactive experience, to a site specific experience. I think that they're just more um, set up, these participatory performances, for Mm -hmm. um, the 21st century rather than 
kind of this like old theater method that's being used. Also, it's like quite just ridden with like capitalist ideologies in the sense mm. of like how much money and um, these like shows costs and like yeah. having knowledge and yeah, it's a bit challenging. I think that a lot of like artwork and performance is that happen on a stage or on a theater are mm-hmm. often like neglectful of like mm-hmm. the lower 60% of people. Yeah. In yeah. terms of economically speaking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Okay. Also interested about um, that, like when dance is placed in this proscenium style mm-hmm. theater, yeah. there's like a loss of connection between mm-hmm. the audience. Totally. And if it is um, abstract contemporary mm-hmm. movement, you're alienating a large part of the population because yep. they look at it and they're like, I don't know what the fuck's going on. They can mm-hmm. like look at it and say it was beautiful, but they don't want to feel disconnected from it because like they don't the narrative. know. narrative. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They don't know what's going on, mm-hmm. you know? And so like that's also a challenge. So like why are they connected with these performers? What makes them connected with these performers? Like we talked about character. Yeah. Problem characters mm-hmm. and the character's journey. And mm-hmm. that seems to be a large part of why you watch this theater and what connects you to theater. Yeah. But in contemporary performance, there's no... There's often no characters, mm-hmm. and there's often no like differentiation Narrative. in terms of journey between yeah. performers. So, like, I, I guess this is a, I'm throwing a question back at you now because I'm very fascinated by this. Um, like, is there a way to like make non-narrative dance accessible to an audience? Like, I mean, we talked about the the perform like the immersive nature of it, but like, because I think I think as an, as an audience, at least for for the the, the non-privileged, it's like. You crave story. You crave catharsis. You crave that. So, like, yeah. what would an example of that be? Because, like, I'm, I'm I'm genuinely curious. Non-narrative. Well, I think the work that Aria Evans is doing right now for mm-hmm. her show, Heart to Heart, is non-narrative. Mm-hmm. But it also has a lot of different performers from different backgrounds mm-hmm. that are informing the work. And yeah. there's a large use of text. Even if it's not narrative, it's about conversations. Interesting. Like, conversations about the state of the world. Yeah. Through text and movement. So I think mm. that helps because there's things for people to grab onto. Yeah. But in terms of just like abstract movement, that's But we not... don't really even know that yet, right? I mean, it hasn't really mm. been presented enough for us to know that there's enough for audiences to grab onto. Um, well, the response that we had from two weekends ago when we presented one of the duets mm-hmm. was good. Mm-hmm. And what was the audience base up of? Um, I don't know. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like a show that I was part of the presenting group, so I don't know how they mm-hmm. brought audience members in. Interesting. Right. Yeah. It's so curious to me. Just, like, also, I, I think about, like, the theater that tours. Like, it is often less about the story they're telling and more about the context they're telling it in. Mm-hmm. Like, I think about, uh, do you know Daughter? Mm-hmm. Daughter's this, like, touring sensation, international touring thing. It's a, mm-hmm. just a show about this guy who's like, just a really shitty, toxic dude. And it's, like, really scary and weird. But I think it's succeeding because, like, in the wake of the Me Too movement, like, like it's so relevant. And just to see someone, like, so disgusting on stage talk about his daughter in a beautiful way and everyone else in such a terrible way. Like, it gets people and people are rattled by it. But because the context, it's not the show itself, but the context surrounding the show and how it fits into the greater sociopolitical conversation. I think that's why it's a success. So, like, right. I don't know. I, I don't have an answer for this dance thing because, I'm again, I'm not in the dance world. But, like, that's so interesting to me. Just, like... Yeah, maybe it's part of the Shakespeare question, too. Like, how do we make something that people see maybe as inaccessible, like, 
a more populist experience if that's what we want. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Huh. That's a, that's a good podcast point. I also, feel. geographically speaking, it could mm-hmm. be dependent, right? Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. In Toronto, maybe there's not as many viewers that are going mm-hmm. to arts performances. I don't know. Yeah. What are what are like the dance cities in the world? Because I know like Toronto's one of it's the fourth largest English speaking theater city in the world. Oh, interesting. Yeah, behind Chicago, New York, and London. But like, what are the dance cities? in the Chicago's world? the biggest. Chicago's third. Oh, Chicago, New York. Chicago. So it's London or New York are number one. Yeah. Oh, okay. Then Chicago, then us. Ah, okay. But like for dance, what are what are the centers of the world for that? I mean, I would say New York. Yeah, and probably similar. New York and London, yeah, are probably pretty, yeah. pretty big. Yeah. Um, there's a city that I'm missing that I like. L.A. I wouldn't say for dance, mm. TV and film, maybe. right? Lots of commercial dance work. Yeah, but oh, in LA. terms of if we're yeah. thinking theater and if mm. we're thinking live, mm-hmm. yeah, I would say, um, well, like, Ailey's based out of New York. If we're thinking like traditional dance, like Persimmons, right? Mm. I want to say there's like what it's like Washington or there's a city in the states that I'm missing that has like a huge theater base and I can't think of it right. Mm-hmm. Boston, maybe Boston. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's gonna be a good one because um, there's Boston. like a bunch of university programs between New York and Boston that are dance based. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah. It depends. Europe is huge. Yeah, there's mm-hmm. lots of like experimental, contemporary, modern work in. Europe. And people are into that shit. They want to go. They are into it over there. Wow. That's yeah. so fascinating to me. <laughs> I was just thinking about different cities too. Like, I you know, like Vancouver has a more performance art practice than narrative practice. Mm-hmm. So, like, the techs in their shows are so sparing. I think about Hong Kong XL, which actually develops technology for their shows. Okay. Like they did a show called Foxconn something where, like, they were playing on pianos, but the only music you heard in pianos was gunshots. Mm-hmm. So, they would have a system where when the performers would fail the piano song, their lights would shut off. So, like, there was a visual tracking of their failure rate and their competency rate. And when they reached a certain rate, their tech would shut off. So the entire show was a series, not narrative-based, but the entire show was a series of competitions between these three pianists, between poetry. It was, like, really fucking weird. But the fact that, like, Hong Kong Excel, which is the company, developed this, like, projector lighting technology for success and failure. Like, I don't know. I I think about different cities when you talk about that. And, like, that, that to me is so fucking cool. But, like... No one is working on that level in Toronto, technically. Mm. Like, building projector models through Isadora and, like, Ugh, fucking with it like fucking that. Isadora. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck. Oh, my God. No. Mm-hmm. So interesting. Yeah, but the city, for me, at least for theater, is, like, it's narrative-based. Mm-hmm. It's story-based, mm-hmm. which is not right or wrong, but it's just, like... It's just different. Just the nature of the city. And I, I always think about, like, how does the cultural makeup of the city influence the stories or the experiences we're selling versus another city... I also really question contemporary work having narrative sometimes. Yeah, Because of the narrative, especially in contemporary dances, sometimes it's so put on. Mm -hmm. It's so unrealistic and it's so campy. Yeah. Mm. And it doesn't doesn't feel part of the form. It's not genuine. Mm -hmm. It feels a bit like it's just there to make people laugh and to like try and connect. But it's really like, hello, look at me trying to connect with everybody. (laughs) It's like really mm. campy, and yeah. I it often like it often takes me out of the performance when mm. I see stuff mm. like that. Yeah, mm. especially anytime actually I see like words spoken in <laughs> yeah. contemporary dance movement, mm-hmm. it takes me out of it because often it's 
it's often the dramaturgy isn't there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What is dance dramaturgy? I'm also a dramaturg, so I'm curious about this, but like, what's dance dramaturgy like? Like, what's that process like as you both understand it? You should talk to Patricia Allison about mm, that. Because yes. she works in theater too. Yeah. Yes. That could yeah. be, I, I don't think I have enough uh, education or means mm. to answer that question, but. No. I've only had a very brief experience with dramaturgy and dance. Mm-hmm. So, and I've like never done it for someone else. Mm-hmm. It's always been like put on the like one time I've had it, it's been like put on me. How was that for you? It was really hard because I don't work with text a lot. I don't oh. talk while I dance a lot. Oh, they they dramaturge your text. Was yeah, that so it? they came in and oh. like and you're acting sometimes too. Huh. Yeah, and they like gave us like so. I wonder if I should talk about this because it's not my piece and it's hilarious. It's okay if you don't want to. <laughs> I'm just genuinely curious. Yeah. I mean, like I'll just like ask her and then if she doesn't she's like no don't talk about it please I'll yeah. it up. um so do you know Hemenya? she's in know four Hemenya. sisters yeah. yeah she came in and she's doing the dramaturgy for heart to heart so when yes. we had this like informal this like showing of one of the duets yeah. jordan's and i's duet mm-hmm. Hemenya came in and watched it for the first few times but the thing is like the text is unstructured right now yes so the movement is structured yeah the text is unstructured and we have like a couple markers or a couple mm-hmm. places to hit mm-hmm. and then Gave us notes about like this feel this felt right this didn't feel right why is this connecting and just like if yeah. you're t- if we're talking about like having a through line for your entire eight minutes mm-hmm. I think you need to do A B and C mm-hmm. is like what basically did it cool yeah and it like worked because like after she gave us those notes mm-hmm. the next time we ran it I was like mm, mm. yes it made it felt a lot better like it Good. doesn't didn't feel like I was forcing the text on top of my yeah. movement it felt like it. Mm-hmm meshed a little bit better so i guess in this context it's like an outside eye roll yeah yeah cool. yeah 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 so. i'm just i'm, I'm so curious because like again dramaturgy is also something i'm getting into so like yeah it's yeah i don't know i just like i think the day that she came in i was like having a really rough day mm-hmm. and so like i was like fucking exhausted i was tired yeah and like someone was coming in to see the work who we'd never we'd been working on this for a year mm-hmm. and we've never had someone into watch it yet yeah and then, like, all of that anxiety of, like, having someone in the room when it's not yeah. ready, it's not done, mm-hmm. was, like, a lot. And then I was just, like, just sitting there taking and I was, like, I will do my best. <laughs> you yeah. know? Just, like, praying that I can, like, embody them in the moment. Well, I also think it's, like, hard having, like, a dramaturg. Like, I think about, I always think about the first day of rehearsal. Like, if you set up the expectation of a dramaturg on the first day, right, that might be a little different because then your mind is, like, oh. But if you keep, in, if you introduce, like, a new element late in the process, like, how do I adapt? How do I adapt? Right. So I don't know. That's, to me, it's like going back to directing. It's like a container thing. Mm. Not to criticize this project. Right. But like, I just think that like your response was like totally like a natural one. Because mm. like... I it, also uh, was worried. It's like was mm. me as like a dancer and not a voice, like a person that uses my voice a lot. Mm. Was like also like a response to someone critiquing what I'm saying. You That's know? Interesting. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. We should ask the question. Yes. Is being an artist fucking killing you? It did this summer. Um, I think I answered this in the thing. Uh, right now, it's not. I'm doing pretty well. Uh, uh, but like this summer, uh, my last profit share gig. Um, <laughs> I don't know. If, did you read the email? Yeah. Yeah. Oh my god. So like, <laughs> I was producing this uh, festival of new works in the Assembly Theater, which is an unventilated space in Parkdale. Um, I got heat stroke, and I was also building my set by myself in my gar- in my friend's garage out of paper mache. So like. <laughs> I I contracted whooping cough like this summer like I'm an evil disease. Well, yeah, it's like didn't didn't that die as you cough? 
<laughs> as I die, yeah. You okay? Use some water? <laughs> no, I'm good. Yeah. Okay. Don't they like vaccinate for that? Uh, I don't apparently know. it's out of my system, but yeah. So like during my last fringe, during this fringe, like I couldn't do anything because like I was dying. Mm. And like I, I, it was like I was really, really ill. Um, I had like a fever. I couldn't sleep because it hurt to swallow. I spent my entire profit share on fringe on drugs, like vitamin C drugs, which I still have to this day. Um, so like I just, it was just a waste of time. And just, I remember sitting there and being, I was watching, um, the, there's the show called Drama 101, which was like all these young people singing about how much they love drama school. And it was really emotional, got really good reviews. And this like man next to me was like shriveled out into a ball because I was watching like horking bile into this little handkerchief. And I've never seen someone so repulsed by me. Like he was sitting in his seat in a complete ball. And I was like, I'm sorry. I just want to watch the kids be gay and act. And they were like, no. So being treated like a pariah in every theater I was at like my favorite favorite theater festival in toronto made me realize that like i can't work for profit share because it's fucking killing me like it actually killed me this summer to be like i'm gonna paper mache an entire set by myself and it's gonna be great while i have heat stroke while i have heat stroke and do this festival and it was like i need to learn how to say no to things mm. so it was killing me and now it's not because i'm not taking profit share gigs anymore or if i do they've got to be really worth it mm. but like that was a foundational experience for me oh and i also like three weeks ago when i was playing ping pong i hurt my back like, I picked up too many balls, squatted too many times, <laughs> and I couldn't get up. Like, Stratford had put me up in this, like, wonderful three-story, like, mansion. And I was, like, amazing. Great. And then I remember crawling on my hands and knees up the stairs. And this is going to get really gross, but, like, like I couldn't take a shit because it would hurt <laughs> in my lower back. Like, when I, when, when I would go to shit on the toilet, I would just be sitting there and, like, screaming <laughs> in an empty mansion <laughs> as I took a shit. And I was, like... This is disgusting. I don't think anyone's ever talked about shit on here, and it's just. I don't. You, me. Please keep this on. Like this is really important to me. And it's like, like literally, my choreographer because I did this hilarious ping pong workshop where we played ping pong for a week, and then a choreographer would track our movements, and then I write based on his choreography. Really dumb. Anyway, so he came over one morning, and he's like, "Take off your shirt," and I was like, "Okay." So he just got on my back, and then like was rubbing olive oil into my back and pressing into it as I screamed into my pillow. It was like. <laughs> It was Why like, olive oil? Because we didn't have any other oil. We were in Stratford. We didn't have any other fucking oil. So like literally like I'm screaming in this mansion as like as this like beautiful man like presses into my back and then like puts these weird like medicinal Chinese patches all over my body. <laughs> oh, he's playing like glacier noises on his like iPad. And I'm like, man, I'm dying. This is what it means to die. <laughs> yeah. In this Was it heaven or hell? It was terrible. It was hell. And like, just sitting there too, because the whole idea of this workshop was you're going to get better at ping pong. And I was like, yeah. And I was doing really well until I hurt my back. And like, I just felt like a loser because like I became the worst ping pong player because I couldn't bend down. I couldn't do anything. And then like, I'd actually assembled this team together on the workshop of people I thought I could beat. And they were all kicking my ass. And I was like, this is so upsetting. And, and like, again, I'm all lathered up in oil. I'm like, I'm like more slippery than a slip and slide. And, like, I just can't do anything. So, yeah, theater killed me last summer and theater killed me three weeks ago. It's It, it was fucking killing me, but, like, I've learned. Also, I think, like, it's, like, <laughs> the sentences, like, yeah, I was playing ping pong and I fucked up and then that's why theater killed me. It did. It just, it's, it's, 
That's like saying like I'm a rabbit and because of that I have to go to the jump I have to go to like the water park. Like it doesn't make any sense. It's just like that's the way my mind works. Like I wrote this grant, I was on this I was on this residency at Stratford where we were talking about East Asian bodies in competitive sports. And I was like, cool, sick. Um I got the money, which shocked me because I, I I mean like it just shocked me because the, the project it's valid, but it's ridiculous. Like we're playing ping pong. A choreographer's tracking our movements. We're doing social experiments. When we win, we get a sticker. When we lose, we don't get a sticker. Um, like, it was really fucked up. And then, like, on the last day, we play against a bunch of white people at Stratford, um, who kicked our asses, by the way. <laughs> These old volunteers murdered us. Um, but, yeah, I was like, I'm going to be really good at ping pong. This is going to be great. Ha ha, residency at Stratford. And then, of course, I get injured. And, like, the joke was it ended my ping pong career, <laughs> my athletic career, and like that. But, yeah, that, that really fucked me up. And being there and being like, Man, I guess this is what athletes have to deal with. Like, not being able to shit. And crawling up three flights on their hands and knees. And not, like, yeah. It was no bueno. So, it killed you then. Yes. But I came back, and I'm still here. So, but not in this exact moment. It's No, it, I'm doing really well in this exact moment. I feel like I'm where I need to be. I'm on projects that really excite me. Cool. But three weeks ago, I was screaming. Repeatedly. <laughs> Alone. I think that just like encompasses the artist experience. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like from one extreme to the next. Mm-hmm. I know. I was so happy when I came back to Toronto. Like, I cried when I saw the CN Tower because I'm like, there's an elevator in my apartment. Mm. I just didn't realize how inaccessible a lot of buildings are as I was like limping around Stratford. And like, there's nothing wrong with me. It's just my lower back really hurt. Mm. And like, I should probably go to a chiropractor or something. But like, I think I'm better, but you never know. <laughs> Yeah, you never, you really you know. never know. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. This was a sprawling conversation. <laughs> it's my favorite type, to be honest. All Amazing. Over, yeah, all over the fucking place. <laughs> um, if people want to find you or see what you're up to, where should they look? Uh, I have Twitter and a, uh, Instagram. It's <laughs> a fat Chinese boy um, with a Y and an I. Um, I'm I will at- say when that inst- when that name came up on our Instagram, I was like. What is, cause Devin and Corinne con, like, or usually Devin actually contacts like people through Instagram and I like just see the notifications coming up and your name came up and I was like, who the fuck is, who this? is this? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, it made me intrigued. <laughs> uh, I mostly post like really blurry photos on Instagram, but like sometimes I post content, which is fun. Uh, I'm an avid poster, so follow me on there. Um, directing a musical at Hamilton opens on May 8th. Um, it's gonna be a real show. A real show. Mm. <laughs> love that yeah (laughs) alright thank you guys so much for listening Um, if you have any questions feel free to DM us send us an email check us out on Facebook thank you so much for listening and have a great day y'all